It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Welcome to Ed Up Legal. This is Patty Roberts, your host and Dean of St. Mary's University School of Law. Today I am joined by Deborah Jones Merritt. She is a distinguished university professor and the John Deaver Drinko Chair Emerita at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. And, and as I mentioned when we talked previously, in reading your bio to prepare for today, I see that you had the amazing experiences of clerking for both Justice Ginsburg and Justice O'Connor at different times in their journey and your journey. And so I'd like to start just asking you, how on earth did you end up working for both iconic, amazing female judges? Well, it's a interesting story and I, I was very fortunate, but I also use this story sometimes to explain to students that setbacks in career sometimes turn out better than you ever expected them. The story actually starts in my second year of law school when I was extremely fortunate to take constitutional law from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was one of only two women teaching at Columbia Law School then. And I asked for her section, uh, partly because I wanted to have a woman professor sometime during law school, and partly because I'd heard about her uh, cases before the Supreme Court. That was when she was in her active litigation period. Well, then at the end of my second year, I um, was offered a clerkship with a very prominent judge on the DC circuit named Harold Leventhal and was very fortunate to accept that. In November of my third year, Judge Leventhal had a heart attack and died uh, tragically. Um, in fact, he was actually playing tennis with his then law clerk and I can't imagine what it was like for that law clerk. Oh, that would as, be terrible. Yeah, absolutely. As it happened, President Carter appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Leventhal's seat. And while I was taking an exam in December of my third year, uh, I came out to take a break and Professor Ginsburg walked past me in the hallway and said, we need to talk. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, I'd love to talk, but I'm in the middle of an exam. Can I come up (laughs) afterwards? Which exam were you taking? You know, I think it was antitrust. Okay. All right. Because that professor had a very long exam. So I think that's why I was out in the hallway getting a candy bar. (laughs) And so um, then Professor Ginsburg asked me to clerk for her if she was confirmed. And she was confirmed. And I began clerking for her in September uh, after I'd taken the bar exam. So that was, um, you know, a story of tremendous luck and good fortune and things turning out differently than I originally uh, thought. And then... The same story, or a very similar story, not quite as tragic with the Supreme Court. Um, In the fall of that year, 1980, Justice Potter Stewart asked me to clerk for him on the Supreme Court, and I very excitedly agreed. And then the following June, uh, just before I was going to get married to my law school sweetheart between the two clerkships, and just shortly before the wedding, 
uh, Stewart announced that he was retiring from the bench. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I said to my husband, oh, great, we'll go to Europe, whatever. That's right. All of a sudden, you're unemployed unexpectedly, right? All of a sudden, we have more than a single week for our honeymoon. But um, Reagan, President Reagan announced his nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor pretty quickly. And she got in contact with me and the other would have been Stuart clerks uh, and asked all of us to clerk for her. We had to keep the clerkship secret for two months because she wanted she didn't want anybody to think she was being presumptuous. So I not only had the good fortune of clerking for both of them, but clerking for each of them in their first year on the court, which was really extraordinary. Um, what? An extraordinary story. I mean, both of those really exceptional stories, and I'm so glad you shared them. If if you would, working for such iconic women leaders in our justice system in so many ways, um, could you share one lesson you learned from each of them that you carry with you today? Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, I'll probably share two for each, since I'm not sure I could limit it to one. And of the course, guests, you know, what, guests what, can what, say however many. Right. They want. <laughs> I mean, the overwhelming lesson, of course, was that women really could make it in this field. Um, when I went to law school, there were still only a third women in my class. And I was often interviewing with law firms that had maybe one, uh, maybe no law women lawyers. And so to see these women and their tremendous achievements was inspiring in itself. I think from... Um, I still think of her as professor and then judge and Justice Ginsburg. She was such an elegant writer and cared so much about writing that that was something that I had always cared about, but became even more important to me. But then the other lesson I learned from her is one that many listeners may not really connect with her name, and that is the humanity of the parties in every case. Uh, I mean, she wrote on the appellate court, we were writing about the law and you tend to get divorced from the parties, but she really cared about the humanity of the people. There was one case in which there were some elderly residents in the District of Columbia, and the city was going to take their property for some purpose, and they had brought a lawsuit, but they really had no legal grounds um, to recover. But she came back from the conference, and she told us, she said, well, there's nothing we could do for them. The law is just against them. But we agreed that Judge Spotswood Robinson would write the opinion. Now, that was meaningful because he was years behind in his docket. So what that meant was, we're going to give these poor people a few more years before. Oh, will... That's awesome. <laughs> he will issue the opinion. And they're, oh. when they're elderly, they won't be booted out. So you might not always get that from you know, her demeanor, she was always talking about the law and so forth, but she really cared about the individuals in every case. Um, and that was certainly true about Justice O'Connor as well. I think the, the two biggest lessons that I learned from her were first the incredible pressure of being a trailblazer. I mean, that would have been true of Ginsburg as well, but I got to see it really upfront and, and personal with O'Connor because being the first woman on the Supreme Court coming from Arizona, all of a sudden being dumped into this East Coast, um, you know, fishbowl, where I mean, the reporters were going through her trash at home. They were so eager to find out, you know, just little things or following her in the supermarket to see what kind of food she bought. So, and we knew that every single opinion that was issued from our chambers, that people would be raking it over to find the first mistake made by the first female justice, right? Wow. So no pressure, huh? 
And she coped with that with such grace. Um, so that was one lesson I learned. I was glad I wasn't ever going to be a trailblazer, you know, that other women had done that, but learned from her how I, I could deal with that. And then I also saw, you know, the illegal issues are just so difficult on the Supreme Court. Um, the cases wouldn't get there if there wasn't something to be said on both sides. And it's sometimes easy from the outside to say, you know, well, obviously the case should turn out this way or to know which way you'd want to turn it out. But I saw, I saw how difficult they were. And she would really um, agonize and think about the cases deeply and, and look for nuance in the cases. She was sometimes criticized later for being the sort of wishy-washy middle vote who, who decided a case on, on, on narrow grounds, but that's what she was looking for. Um, although I will say once she decided a case, she was, she was quite decisive. Like mm -hmm. she had a pillow in her, a couch pillow in her office that said, um, often in error, but never in doubt or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, know, you make a decision and then you just need to move on. That's right. Stick with it. Stick with it. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that is an extraordinary experience you had to to have clerked with both of those. Um, well, Judge Ginsburg, later Justice and uh, Justice O'Connor. And I'm sorry, of course, about the loss to all of us, but to you as her clerk um, of Justice Ginsburg. Um, so I wanted to ask, after that, um, how did your career land you in academia? Well, I had always wanted to be a teacher from when I was in nursery school. In fact, I was the oldest and I frequently forced my younger brother and sister to play pupil while I was the teacher. <laughs> and when they got old enough to resist that, I would set up some dolls or something else to be a teacher. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I went, you know, when I was in third grade, I wanted to be a third grade teacher. In high school, I wanted to be a high school teacher. In college, I was majoring in history and I was really interested in history as, a, as an academic subject. But by my senior year, all of a sudden, two things came to me. One was that there were no jobs in history <laughs> that, and the people who held those jobs were not going to vacate them for a long time. And the other was that it just didn't have enough application to the contemporary world. I love teaching, I love writing, researching, thinking about things, but I wanted it to have an impact. So it turned out, um, I've told the story that way because it's really not a simple story of following in the family business. My father was a law professor. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I was able to go to his law school tuition free. So I thought, okay, I'll try it. Let's see if this is an interesting area because he didn't, he didn't talk a lot about his work at home. So I had no idea what being a law professor would like. I just knew I wanted to be a teacher and I wanted something more meaningful than to the contemporary world to solving problems than history was. So I went to law school and I loved it. Um, I did I did then clerk for two years afterwards, and I wanted to get some practice experience before I would teach. So I worked for a wonderful uh, boutique litigation firm in Atlanta, and then went into teaching. Um, did you ever look back or was it the perfect um, compilation of your experiences, interest in impact, and that those early years of teaching your siblings? Well, it's interesting you ask that. I, I never really looked back, partly because teaching is so flexible and you can do lots of different things. But about maybe 15 years ago, I was thinking how 
I never, I had never been in a courtroom. Well, I'd been in a courtroom, but I had never, you know, been a stand-up trial lawyer and that it was a little late to do that, right? I mean, it, I was about 50 then, you know, do I just go to some law firm and say, hey, here I am. Would you like me to do a case for you? Um, <laughs> just, just at that time, the associate dean came to me with what seemed like a preposterous suggestion, which is that I should co-teach our criminal defense clinic. And I pointed out to him that I had never practiced criminal law, had never taught criminal law, and had no clinical experience, and in fact, had practiced for only 18 months, some 20 years earlier. Uh, but, you know, the real answer was, well, we don't have anybody else to do it. So we, yes. we're desperate. I've been in that position, so I know. <laughs> but, but, you know, he said these things like, well, you know, you like trying new things. You've written the evidence book. You know, you like legal ethics. So anyway, I was intrigued. And it's sort of, I still never have done a trial. I have watched students do trials. And I did, lest people think that our clinics are, are you know, a, a disaster at Ohio State. I was co-teaching with somebody who was a really experienced um, criminal defense lawyer. But I went on and, gee, the last 10 years of my career, I co-taught both a criminal prosecution clinic in one semester in the fall and a criminal defense clinic in the spring semester in a different county. And I adored that. I, I think the clinical teaching was really my favorite part of um, academia. And I never would have predicted that when I first started teaching, you know, many, many years ago. That is certainly an interesting path for um, a Supreme Court clerk. And as a clinician, I'm thrilled to hear that that was kind of the capstone of your your teaching career. Well, it is. It's just it's the best type of teaching because, um, I mean, first of all, when and, and people often would ask me, did I want to start an appellate clinic? And I would say, no, I have no interest in starting an appellate clinic. I mean, working, it's working with clients, or in the case of a prosecutor, they're not technically clients, they're complainants and other witnesses. And the stories that evolve and the, the attempt to problem solve, I really, I'm a problem, I love solving problems, people problems, and misdemeanor cases are much more about problem solving if, if you have the time to do it right. So that as prosecutors, we weren't just trying to throw somebody in jail for X number of months, we were trying to figure out this problem and what's the best way to overcome this problem to make the victim whole and to make sure this doesn't happen again. And conversely, on the defense side, you know, how can we solve this person's problem, which often went way beyond the criminal charge. And that's the one discouraging part about doing um, any sort of indigent legal practice. It's that you can't solve everything. You can try to solve one piece, but I loved it because it's working with the clients and then working with the students at the same time and seeing them grow and develop, it's fabulous. Oh, I completely agree. When you, you watch students in their first client interview or you know their first hearing or preparing um, for some sort of negotiation, I mean, it, it is very exciting to watch them take all that they've learned and put it into action. And uh, it's so empowering for them. So it's it's really fun to watch. I'm glad you had that experience. But you love to problem solve. And that is a great segue into uh, work that you did with Access Lex and their Center for Legal Education Excellence, the Building a Better Bar Empirical Study. And so yeah, I think people would say there's some problem solving that needs to be done with the bar exam. And I would love to hear about that work. Absolutely. Um, well, and that work relates to both legal education and licensing. We purposely called it building a better bar 
rather than bar exam, because our idea was that we need better lawyers, a better bar of junior lawyers. And, and the piece that we've published so far focuses on licensing and the bar exam, but the lessons that are in it apply to legal education, and we hope to take them further. This was a study that was funded by the Access Lex Institute, but I actually did the work in collaboration with the Institute for the Advancement of the legal, American Legal System, which is known as IELTS, uh, located at Denver University. It was a, we, we knew that people had done surveys of what it is that new lawyers do, but those surveys, it seemed to me, just really didn't get at the, the rich data of what people do on a day-to-day -day basis. It's, it's one thing to say 50% of new lawyers work with civil procedure, but what does that mean? Are they drafting complaints? Are they in state court? Are they in federal court? Are they writing briefs on long-arm jurisdiction? What, what does it mean to work with civil procedure? So we decided to do a study with focus groups. And because we wanted to, to gather significant data, we came up with the idea that many people thought we would never reach of holding 50 focus groups all across the country. And wow. we were able, yeah, we were able to do that because we found um, there was a team of 24 people pairs um, in different places who agreed, did the volunteer work to um, facilitate these focus groups. So we had, um, and they were, some of them were law professors, some of them were other people at law schools. A few students were on the teams. We had um, staff members like career services director, academic support staff and so forth. Uh, and so it was for them, I think it was everyone on the team enjoyed being part of this larger project it wasn't too much work to handle. Everyone did three to five focus groups and then sent all the, everything was recorded. And we, you know, each of these focus groups was at least an hour and a half. So there were almost a um, hundred hours of, of discussions that we then had professionally transcribed and then analyzed the data using uh, qualitative um, empirical techniques and came up, I think, with, with a, a really detailed and rich picture of what new lawyers do and therefore what they need in terms of knowledge and skills. And we ended up breaking it out into what we call 12 building blocks um, that lawyers need. And if we look at law schools, and this of course has a lot to say about licensing and I'll talk about that a little bit, but let's stay on law schools for another few moments. Studies showed that law schools have it right in some ways but we are really off base in others. The way, and, and many of us know that we're off base in this ways. It's, it's not like there's some miracle, some, I mean, what we discovered is that almost all new lawyers interact with clients during their first year. There are some who are sheltered in very large firms and don't, but even in large firms, many interact with clients. The, particularly in the corporate law departments, they're often because they're the ones who are organizing the deal uh, they often have interactions with clients. And if they're not interacting with clients on paid matters, the big firms encourage them to do pro bono work where they're interacting with clients pretty much on their own. Yeah. So when you compare that to law school where there are students who graduate who've never met a client, never interacted with a client, don't know how to interview, don't know how to counsel, don't know how to give somebody really bad news. Um, they have to learn that themselves out there in the wide world of practice. And we also learned that 
contrary to the usual view, which I think legal educators have had, which is that we are specialists in doctrine and then the practitioners can teach skills. It's actually harder to learn skills than doctrine in the workplace. Because if you've had three years of doctrinal instruction, you know how to learn new doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so you go to work and, and, you know, we had new lawyers who had never done workers comp or had never done, we had new lawyers in our focus groups who were doing international arbitration and had never done that. And they could learn that um, in various ways on the job. But skills, if they had no foundation in the skills, they didn't even know where to start. How do you learn to be a good negotiator? And the supervisors, our groups included supervisors. We had, we didn't put supervisors and junior lawyers in the same group, but we had groups of both types. The supervisor said, you know, I don't have time to train people. I know that at the end of the day, I'm always going to give my time to the clients and the, and the bill and the paying matters, not to the new associates. And what's more, and this I think is key for educators to hear, they said, we don't have the training to teach people. I mean, I can tell somebody to watch what I do, but I don't know how to really give them feedback. That's what new educators are good at. So why don't you do more of it? Well, and so, one thing that comes to mind too is um, what junior associates out there are going to say, I don't know how to interview, can you teach me? Right. Because right. that would seem right. so fundamental, right? Right, it would seem fundamental. Um, and it is fundamental and it's scary to think about, you know, the way in which we in law schools are failing to serve clients and um, in our own profession, because some of the some of the graduates who were in big law firms and doing these pro bono cases on their own, they said, I have really mixed feelings about this because I feel like I'm practicing on somebody who's poor and I don't know how to get them a good result and I'm getting oh. to be a better lawyer. But Ouch. Yeah, but why after spending all this money for three years of legal education, am I practicing on a poor person um, without any guidance or supervision? Because there would be very nominal supervision in those cases, but not, um, not real supervision. And then there were other people in private practice or in government practice or in legal aid and public interest places who would say, you know, yeah, they just handed me 40 cases and said, go for it. Uh, so I think Law schools have really got to step up and do more with clinical education, um, some more with simulations, but there's really no substitute for dealing with an actual client at some point before you graduate from law school. There's just so many things that, that can't be simulated. Um, I completely agree. One of my favorite stories from clinical teaching is, um, and we had done role plays and we had a, a a very robust lawyering skills program at my prior institution. So there had been role plays there. And the student and I were sitting talking with a parent of a special education student and who had really struggled with the school year after year, reached a lot of level of frustration. But after we did the intake interview and talked about how we may be able to help, she ran around the table crying and hugged my student with appreciation mm -hmm. and said, you're my hero. Now, I could never simulate that ever. Right, right. And he right. was like deer in headlights, but you better believe that that impacted him and he did a better job on that case. Absolutely. And we've had that experience in our criminal defense clinic with grown-ups who've been charged who are uh, overcome with relief um, and also in the prosecution clinic with complainants who said, you know, thank you, nobody else ever believed me. And 
um, we would we sometimes prosecuted domestic violence cases, and you know it was it was tough going emotionally, but really really impactful. Um, so we've just got to get over our resistance to clinical education, and for, and it's not when when people in legal education talk about clinical classes as if this is some sort of you know paper filing or it's not as intellectually challenging. I have never been more intellectually challenged teaching the clinics than, you know, standing up and teaching evidence. That's easy. Torts, any of these constitutional law, I've taught lots of courses. It is so much more challenging to be teaching, whether it's in the clinic classroom or one-on-one -on -one with the students, um, because there's so many more balls to juggle. Um, it's not just about the doctrine. Right. So, but on yeah. the other hand, the, what the building a better bar study what it showed that law schools are doing well and this is where i hope maybe we can come to a compromise so that we make education better for everyone law schools are absolutely right to be teaching theory and policy in doctrinal courses because what we found is that people don't need to memorize a lot of black letter rules that's a big part of what's wrong with the bar exam because the rules change, they're different in different states and, and they work in new areas that they've never um, been in before. What they need are a whole lot of what we call threshold concepts. That's a word, a phrase we borrowed from cognitive science. And threshold concepts are ideas that a layperson might not know, but that you know as an expert in the field or a professional in the field and that allow you to identify issues and to find the right answers and so forth. So for example, a layperson probably wouldn't know that there are different courts and you can only file a lawsuit in some courts, not in others, that each court has what we as professionals call subject matter jurisdiction. But what you need to know as a law graduate is that there is such a thing as subject matter jurisdiction and that you need to check it and that for every court, it will be defined differently. And you find the definition in the statutes and in the rules. They don't really need to know as law school graduates what the um, threshold amount and controversy is for a federal court. I mean, that's the sort of thing you look up. We, yeah. So that to some extent, the bar exam is making people memorize one tree, every twig and branch, and ignore the whole forest. Uh, whereas in law school, and the reason I say that, you know, the, the policies and the theories as into it is that you remember those threshold concepts because you understand the policy behind it. Um, another one, like a concept I used to teach torts, the concept of the least cost advice, you know, avoider. Where can we put the burden of potential injury that will create the fewest costs? That's an economic theory, but it helps you remember why we have strict liability in certain types of situations and helps you just sort of approach and understand the whole field of tort. So I think we need to stop teaching quite as many advanced doctrinal courses, um, keep teaching the basic ones in the same ways that we have been teaching them and add a whole lot more clinics and, and some more simulations. Well, I am confident that people listening to this podcast will access the Building a Better Bar study and read more <laughs> about some of the things you found in these fac focus groups, which is just fascinating what you've shared with us so far. But it's a good place to think about what you just said about what we as law schools are doing well, what we could be doing better, and ask you in looking at the next decade of legal education, how should we evolve? 
what should we be doing and how are we likely to evolve? <laughs> There's, there may very well be a difference. Yeah, um, I'm afraid that there may well be a difference. I would say three things, two of which I've already said. The first is that we retain the way in which we teach our doctrinal courses. And, and by that, I mean the, the focus on theory and policy and really engaging with the material, not memorizing black letter rules. And there's all kinds of great pedagogic um, innovations that people are using to teach there. But that, that focus on threshold concepts is, is essential to forming a professional. The second is that we need many more clinical courses. If I were a state Supreme Court, I would require um, anybody before being licensed to have 15 hours, 15 hours of experiential education, wow, at least eight, at least, well, semester, yeah. at least, at least eight in a live client clinic of some sort. I mean, we're, we're a profession. How can we not have our graduates learning how to interact with clients? Um, I mean, we would never go to a doctor who had never met a patient before. No, they are way ahead of us in medical They're way ahead education. of us. Yeah. In fact, there is not another profession, to my knowledge, that licenses without requiring some sort of experience in the, the actual practice of, of the profession. And the third thing that I would really like to see law schools do um, is to abolish the status hierarchy among the people who teach students. Um, it's just, to me, appalling that clinicians are treated differently at many law schools from people who teach doctrine, that it was painful for me at my own law school when I started teaching in the clinic. There were a few other people who were tenured who taught in the clinic, but they were doctrinal people like me who had come into the clinic, not full-time clinicians. And uh, there was no reason for them to have less job security, to be unable to vote on some matters uh, and to have far less pay than I did. And the same, the same concerns for legal writing, um, for um, academic support. In so many of our law schools, there are you know, between one and three people who are carrying a huge burden of trying to help student, disadvantaged students make it through law school and then also help a large number of students pass the bar exam. Uh, and those people tend to be among the worst paid with the least job security. Um, and that's just... Um, that's just appalling. I don't, I have to say, I'm not sure. I have a lot of hope that legal education will do the right thing. Um, sometimes since I'm also, I'm very involved in advocacy for changing licensing systems. I sometimes think, you know, which impossible thing is more likely to happen? <laughs> that law schools will change or that the bar exam will change? Wow. I don't know where I'd put my money on in that particular scenario if we were making I mean, a bet. <laughs> I sometimes think about a sort of golden, wonderful compromise where um, states agree to license people based on their clinical education. And that means that law schools can do away with all this worry and you know, prep for the bar exam uh, and instead just invest the money in some more clinics and we will have better lawyers and uh, better law schools and a better licensing process. But th these are sides that, have that don't talk together that way. So I'm not sure that we can strike that grand compromise. Well, maybe we can. I love that idea. And um... I would say the worst thing we could do is try not to make such a proposal. Um, yeah, I think what you're yeah. saying makes a lot of sense. 
And, um, and maybe we're getting closer with the NCBE and the changes to the bar exam becoming a little more practically oriented, like the MPT, um, still a long way away, but, um, but maybe, maybe in this next yeah. decade. I think, I think there's hope in, in two directions. I'm, I'm actually on the, um, one of the committees for the NCBE for their new bar exam. And I think, I think it definitely will be better. Um, I still think it will have some real problems of being a high stakes exam given only twice a year, still probably requiring too much memorization and, and very time pressured, which is a real issue. And I think um, all of those things, in particularly the high stakes nature, evoke stereotype threat and are partly responsible for why there's such a disparate racial impact on the bar exam. Mm -hmm. But there's also states that are considering alternatives right now. I don't know of a state that's thinking of abandoning the bar exam altogether, but some are thinking about possibly having alternative tracks. Uh, both Oregon and um, California are considering now maybe that they would license some people based on clinical work or based on supervised practice after graduation. Um, there may even have been some talk in Texas about that. I Back of when the, the COVID opinions were coming out, I, I remember maybe one of your justice is saying something along those lines. So I have to come back to Texas. <laughs> yes, I was um, brand new, a, a new dean in a new pandemic. <laughs> I started <laughs> June 1st of the pandemic. And um, my nine decadal colleagues in Texas and I got together and uh, we did some very significant advocacy um, with the court and the board uh, and prepared a, an apprenticeship proposal hoping mm -hmm. that um, if nothing else, at least during the pandemic, that was a, a way that we could go um, for all of our graduates. It was not successful, but I think we were happy to see that it was at least received um, with thoughtful and careful consideration. Um, Good. So is, are we on the way to that in the future? I, I don't know, but I certainly would be more than happy to to propose, to work with them to come up with some sort of a proposal along the lines that you're talking about where clinicians um, play a bigger role in mm -hmm. assessing the adequacy of someone's training to do the thing we're trying to get them to do, right, practice right, law, right? right. Um, so that's a, that's a really interesting idea. And um, if we had more time, I would ask you um, how we might overcome the the move for universities to look towards less tenure track positions when we're trying to unify and avoid the status hierarchy because um it, do you bring some up do you bring some down how does that work and of course um, it creates all sorts of awkward and challenging situations but some schools are doing it and uh and so We'll keep our eye out on that too. Yeah, that's a difficult one. Um, I, of course, would advocate bringing everybody up. I um, completely agree, but <laughs> as a dean with fiscal restraints. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. Um, but, and sometimes it has to be done gradually. Um, yeah. I've seen some schools that have moved in that direction, but luckily you say we're out of time, so I don't have to answer the hardest question. <laughs> well, thank you. I might have to schedule you again so that you, I can put you on this 
the hot seat for that hard question. But right. <laughs> thanks so much for talking with us. And I really enjoyed um, hearing more about your very unique start of your law school career. Um, and um, also about the work you're doing with building a better bar um, and your thoughts about the future of legal education. So thank you. Well, thank you, Patty, and good luck with your deanship along with this podcast. You're, you're taking on a lot. Thank you. This has been another episode of EdUp Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience podcast network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.